you're listening to Veg Your Best with vegan life coach Michelle Olander. Episode 87. Interview with Ellen Canner, the soulful vegan. Welcome, Vegheads. Welcome back, Veg Your Besties. Today, you have a treat, and it's not me. It's Ellen Cannon, a.k.a. The Soulful Vegan, award-winning author, columnist, and contributor to the Huffington Post, Sever Magazine, Veg News, and the Miami Herald, among other outlets. And for me, most notably, her very, very beautiful book with recipes, Feeding the Hungry Ghost, Life, Faith, and What to Eat for Dinner. I reached out to Ellen Canner because she writes beautifully. She writes beautifully about the intersection of food, wellness, sustainability, and faith. And this is not just intellectual for Ellen. Ellen conducts conscious cooking and mindful eating workshops, and she develops recipes for national brands like California Walnuts, Sum Tahini, and Rancho Gordo Heirloom Beans. Ellen is also a member of a multitude of professional organizations, including the Association of Food Journalists, the International Association of Culinary Professionals, not to mention Les Dames d'Escoffier. You're going to see, Ellen is a deeply passionate and polished professional. In a space populated by a lot of amateurs, and Johnny Come Lately's. I think you're going to hear right away that Ellen is not winging it when she speaks. You're getting some real journalistic insight and experience, in addition to heartfelt wisdom and a real dedication to her community, Miami, which has been, well, been described as ground zero to experience climate change and what that's going to mean for Americans in the very near future. Because her book, Feeding the Hungry Ghost, was my introduction to Ellen Canner, I'm convinced, really convinced, that most of you will love it too. I ask a lot during the interview about her book, but you will have access to all Ellen's soulfulvegan.com links and what's coming up for her in the show notes. So don't worry. Don't worry about memorizing any titles or dates or websites. Just sit back or drive or work out or walk, or whatever it is you're doing. Listen and enjoy Ellen Canner. Ellen Canner, welcome to Veg Your Best. I am excited to be here. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. You know, Ellen, who is, goes by the um, epithet, the soulfulvegan.com, Ellen Canner, soulfulvegan.com. Ellen came to my attention through her book. Feeding the Hungry Ghost, Life, Faith, and What to Eat for Dinner. What to Eat for Dinner. And, you know, this, um, I feel almost like talking to Paul McCartney about his early work in the 1960s, because Ellen wrote this book almost 10 years ago now, I think. But I think it is one of those books that if you haven't discovered, and whether you're vegan or not, you're going to love this book. I'm going to love this book. So anyway, I'm going to talk to her about the book, even though it's not the most recent thing she's done. 
And let's start, Ellen. I would love to know, what is the hungry ghost? Oh, great question. <clears throat> the hungry ghost. My husband and I lived in Tokyo when we were first married. And in the summer, I discovered everyone would flock to their local temple and they would light incense and they would pray and they would bring food offerings like a bowls of rice or oranges. And I asked my Japanese downstairs neighbor who kind of took it upon herself to be my cultural ambassador and help me through numerous blunders. I said, so what's going on? She said, oh, it's hungry ghost season. Hungry ghosts are people we have known in life and they are so clutchy and needy and you may know people like that in your life right now. They're that way even after they die. Uh, and then they're still not happy and they're still hungry, so they come back to haunt you. And the only way to soothe a hungry ghost is through prayer and food. And I thought, huh, you know, that trick works for us now too. If you give us care and attention and nourish us, it quiets our craziness. It feeds our hunger. So that was really important to me. I mean, not just a fantastic vegan meal, but nourishment on a deeper, richer level. I think that's beautiful. This is something we talk about on the podcast now and now and then is the idea of nourishment. This is, we do not live by bread alone. I know you use many, many different, very beautiful um, poetic epithets and metaphors from, from our, our, cultural, um, our cultural inheritance. Um, and I loved what you said. Um, we are as hungry for narrative as we are for food. And I think that is such a beautiful sentence that you, that you included in there. You may not even remember you wrote it, <laughs> but I love it. Well, I started out, I think of myself more as a storyteller. Um, and food is one of the greatest stories we can tell. It's something we all partake in. Um, it's what connects us. It's, it's very fundamental. I totally agree. And you know, the, your book came to my attention, Ellen, because I was commiserating with someone about Lori Colwin. Oh. And I was saying, who is the vegan Lori Colwin? Who? Because I don't know if all my listeners here, I know you know who she is, but I'm, I'm wondering if all our listeners know she was an extremely beautiful writer who wrote about food and family and home and hearth in, I think, the 70s. I'm thinking she died quite young. Um, and I was so impressed by her writing when I was a young wife and mother. And I know that she she some, made some made meant something to you as well. I believe. Absolutely, she was an inspiring writer, not in a highfalutin way, but yeah, this is something you can do. I'm going to tell you something intimate, um, something about me, and something about you, and something great you can cook for dinner. And that sort of became I was. <clears throat> Huffington Post Meatless Monday blogger for years, and that was the format my works would take. Okay, this is something that's going on in the world, whether it's, you know, food distribution issues or a fantastic chef who, who's not only serving wonderful things to her guests, but also serving the homeless. 
um, here is something like something seasonal she likes to do. And here's something you can do now. You can cook this for dinner. So I always like to give real concrete takeaway, but I also want to hook you into something a little deeper too. So it's a, it's a two-way thing. Well, you certainly accomplished that. There are so many really wonderful, there are recipes, but they all kind of belong in, in the narrative that you create. And that's the narrative of you growing as a as a as a partner, as a wife to your husband, as a as a cook. And one of the chapters that um, I, I so enjoyed because I remember Hurricane Andrew. I was oh, safe. And, mm. I was safe and sound. But that's a wonderful chapter. Um, Hurricane Andrew, 1992, Category Five hurricane hit uh, Florida, the Bahamas. I think Louisiana as well, pretty hard. And I only think about what if that happened today with our rising, rising water levels. Oh, look, I live in Miami. I'm ground zero for rising tides. There is every good reason to, to go vegan. Um, and it's not just me who says so. There's science behind it. Uh, a 2018 study concludes uh, the single biggest way to reduce your impact on Earth. Uh, is a vegan diet. Uh, but yes, in 1992, all that was kind of distant and this hurricane was brewing out of nowhere and it should have been, it was really tough. And um, I remember having this sort of makeshift dinner by candlelight because we had no power and it happened in August and the house was sticky and hot and I was cranky. But my neighbors, my family, we all came together and that's how we're gonna see each other through, I think. There really is such a thing as community, even virtual community, vegan community. It's a real thing. That's one of the reasons I love Veg Your Best. You know, you're there for people. Well, that's nice of you to say, you know, I, I don't know any other vegans in real life, as the kids say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I run into them now and again, but the internet, the um, Instagram, which I find a very nice community, as opposed to Facebook, which I, 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 I have a complicated relationship. <laughs> we all have complicated relationships with Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it is, yes, and this is what I, I like to be able to, the people I run into, through my online community and through the internet. I like to be able to share with each other. So I'm so pleased that you're with us. You know, I, I'm trying to look at my notes because I have so many and we can't go through every chapter of your book. And also you are doing things more recently, but I love because it's, it, we just came through Lent and Easter. You have a wonderful um, recipe for gumbo zab, which I have not ever heard of before. Can you tell me something about gumbo zab? Oh, it's wonderful. It's green gumbo. Um, I, I think a lot of people know a good earthy okra-y beanie gumbo, and that's fantastic. But green gumbo is the food for Lent, and it is, you know, it's perfect for spring. Uh, you have to use, I think, an odd number of greens because that's good luck. Um, and it's just vibrant and springy and I make it again and again, and I think, you know, because you got to wash a lot of greens. Like, why am I doing this? And then I make it. It's like, oh, yeah, uh, it, it's, it is a deeply nourishing 
but also a super vibrant in the mouth thing too. It's a very loving thing to feed yourself or someone you love. Now I had not heard of it and I, I'm laughing because this is the job no one in my family likes is washing the greens. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like a hard thing, but for some reason it's not the most popular, but you say that's the secret is to make sure those greens are spotless because you don't want to run into some grit in there. Any grit in your mouth is going to be a turnoff. Yeah, yeah. And so, and this also, because your book is organized around the calendar year and you write in one of them, until the last century, we only ate seasonally. And then came refrigeration and air travel and we could get fresh grapes in December. In fact, we could get everything all the time and we still weren't happy. Uh, sad but true. And I think now we're even more used to, hey, I want it now. Um, we've it's, it's put us out of touch with the seasons. Um, so I think one of the best, I have a number of what I call gentle nudges in the book that'll try and get you to reconnect more with your food, with the planet, with each other. And one is eating seasonally. It's not just a buzzword. It really is something like in Miami, we've just had strawberry season. And I know that's far away for a lot of other places right now. We're going to start getting into mangoes and avocados when you guys get your strawberries. And the reward when you eat something seasonal and local, it's going to tell you when you bite into it. There's nothing more vibrant. I um, did a, a class at our botanical garden at mango season, such a sexy fruit. Uh, and I was telling my friend in Chicago that I was doing this. She said, oh, I love mangoes. I get them here too. And I'm thinking, well, honey, I'm happy for you, but I know that the mango you got has probably got more frequent flyer miles than I do. And it's not gonna taste as wonderful as this big, messy, juicy thing I've got in my hand. So you owe it to yourself to, to enjoy seasonal food. And now we're coming into beautiful stuff wherever you live in the world. You mentioned that you don't, you don't feel that great after a, a transcontinental flight either. So how great are your vegetables and fruits going to be with them? Right. <laughs> yeah. the, so I think that's so important. You know, I grew up in, in, in New England and there are certain foods I literally will not eat unless they are in season. Some things I have a much more, I don't know, forgiving taste buds, but <laughs> asparagus only, only. And I get kind of annoyed if they serve me asparagus, except in asparagus season. I'm like, what, what, what even are you doing? Putting this, it doesn't taste the same. It just doesn't. No, it really doesn't. Unless it's local. Corn also, I will not eat corn unless it's corn season and it's very, very local because it, it, it deteriorates so rapidly that it's just a different, it's a different beast within a few hours. Absolutely. And I think our mouths and our bodies don't even know that anymore. So one of the really fun things you can do is educate yourself. Um, if you don't know what's in season, check your, um, there are all kinds of great websites that'll tell you what's in season, where you are. And hey, call me, I will tell you. Um, and then taste it, taste what an absolute bright new um, stalk of asparagus is like, what a new strawberry is like. Believe me, honey, you're never going to eat winter strawberries again. And the planet will thank you for it. 
right? Because this is what we forget. There is a lot of carbon emissions going into getting those strawberries from Chile to New England and, or getting them from Miami to Alaska. Absolutely. Um, it's so important to eat locally um, and you get to meet your farmers and they'll be able to tell you what's going on. It's like getting a whole new community. Yeah, the um, local farmers, we, my husband and I met when we were living um, in Northampton, Mass, which is where Smith College is. And it's, they call it the Happy Valley. It's been organic -y and farmy for a long time. And we could always go down and then talk to, I remember Trisha, the tomato farmer, and she, you know, in, in the 80s, it was hard to get nice tomatoes in a store. It was really hard. Now they've really upped their game in a lot of places, but they're still not the same as when somebody has been lovingly watching out for them and uh, picking them when the sun is on them and they're very concentrated. So it is this is right back to your idea. We are as hungry for narrative as for food. We can survive on mass market food that's non-seasonal, but it doesn't feed our soul the same way. No, and there are signs that people are starting to figure it out. I mean, it is amazing from the time you and I went vegan to, to now the number of vegan products on the market, commercial products. One of the reasons I, people say, God, you're the most amazing cook. Well, honey, I had to be. I came of age in the days of very brown soy milk. And there was not a wall of refrigerated plant-based milk. There was just a carton of brown soy milk that sat in my coffee and didn't mix with it. And I knew I was supposed to be happy about that, but I wasn't thrilled, you know? Um, but the thing about commercial food, it's like, okay, this is a new innovation and it's going to be great and, and you're going to love it. Well, there are signs that we're not buying that anymore. While the number of commercial vegan products at first shot up sales, now it's starting to level out. So what are we eating instead? Now is a great time to get back to basics, to get back to real food. I think nothing is gonna nourish you more. Maybe, you know, dazzle your mouth for a minute, but you gotta feed your body. You gotta feed your soul too. Yeah, I think, I think one of the keys to having a fun vegan transition, we can always, we can always white knuckle our ways through a lot of things that we want to do. But if having a having a really enjoyable vegan lifestyle is to be able to cook a little bit. Right now, I've got some chickpeas cooking. Could not be easier. You just have dried things sitting in your cupboard or even canned, but dried things sitting in your cupboard. And then you pour water and some aromatics on them and voila, you've got something del delicious and healthful. And, you know, my son moved to Florida last year, my son and his wife. And he likes to garden, he likes uh, gardening vegetables, but he has been overwhelmed. He doesn't know the seasons yet. Doesn't, <laughs> know, doesn't know when things should be planted because completely different gardening season. So um, I, I, in one of your chapters, you, you talk about your garden and um, you talk about the fence that shades some of your arugula. And you, you quote, I love all your quotes. Voltaire said, we must tend our own gardens. He meant it's tough to change the world and it can get ugly and overwhelming out there. So 
Be strategic, specific, and use your energy to nurture your strengths. You can make the world better. I really believe that. Um, one of the things I used to say in my presentations was change your diet, change your life, change the world. You know, there's a whole lot that needs changing out there. And I don't mean to set the bar high, but I also believe it has to start with nourishing yourself because look, you are the engine on which your, your world turns. So we need you healthy, we need you strong. And one of the things I love about being vegan is <clears throat> I told you I was Huffington Post Meatless Monday blogger and I have done stuff for the Meatless Monday program and I love them. But the idea of it, the branding, meatless, like, hello, we're taking something away from you. That's not it. Being vegan is more, it is more flavor, it is more color, it is more vibrant life. Who doesn't want that? I agree, I agree. I, I know that when I stopped eating three or four, maybe six animal products, I filled it in with just dozens and dozens, maybe even scores of new things. It just, I made an effort to put them in and now they are just effortless to that's, that's the, the transition does require a little bit of focus. It does require a little bit of intentionality, but it is actually, there's nothing restrictive about it, in my opinion. Agreed. No, every, like, when I used to tell people I was vegan back in the day when that was an odd thing, I'd say, hey, chocolate and champagne are vegan. What's wrong with that? And that's the thing. You've got to make a mind shift a little bit. I think if you're going to do anything new, so, you know, bring your attention and awareness to it. Uh, I teach conscious cooking and mindful eating, regardless of where you are um, in terms of food preferences, because it starts with being a little more conscious of feeding ourselves and like the sheer physicality of it, how something tastes how something feels. I think we're not even as conscious about how much we enjoy texture of food. So I kind of like to, to turn people on to that. I can, um, it, it's really exciting and kind of gets us thinking in new ways. Ellen, you, you talk about um, doing presentations and teaching and working with people. Give me an idea, give our listeners an, an idea of how you, how you do your teaching, your presentations, how that looks these days for you. Well, these days, they're still mostly virtual. I love doing in-class, um, in-person teaching because nothing is going to show you online the way this smells, the way this tastes. Um, but I do a number of classes through my local library, but they're free and open to the public. So um, if you sign up for my newsletter on my website, it will tell you what I'm doing when. Um, and let's see, what are the two classes I've been doing? Uh, Cheap Vegan Eats for Tough Times, because we all, whatever your income level is, we know that food prices are astronomical. They've gone up more than they have in a generation and we're all feeling it. And um, you know, we were talking about spring greens. I, I do one on great greens because I have a friend who is a brilliant vegan pastry chef and it's easy to get people to eat vegan sweets, but I find the hardest thing in the world is to get people to eat greens. So I show three different ways to integrate greens into your diet 
and in, in fun, delicious, easy ways. So I always like to give people real concrete solutions and things they can eat that they'll like. That's a great strategy because there is a, there is this rap that being vegan is a privileged way to eat and that it is expensive. And it can be, it certainly can be a privileged, expensive way to eat. Well, we were just talking about maybe going to 11 Madison Park in New York when we were in New York. And we, <laughs> but just if, if you don't know out there, listeners, that it is one of the, it has been one of the most famous restaurants in the world. And they have recently, I think since they reopened after, after COVID, it's uh, entirely plant-based. Um, but that is an example of elevated, privileged, um, maybe just a bit too precious for my for my tastes kinds of vegan cooking. Me too. Um, I think it is wonderful that fine dining is embracing plant-based. However, I'm really big on basic kitchen literacy, on being able to cook a pot of beans, on being able to know what's in season and taking it home and doing something good with it. Um, look, I used to teach kids and I'd say, look, if you want to stick it to the man, it's not about buying food. It's about being able to make your own. Mm -hmm. uh, beans, whole grains, these things are pantry friendly. They're accessible. They're affordable. They're versatile. And I think these kinds of foods are what connects us. Um, one of the classes I'm teaching features beans. And I remember making a pot of beans for something for like a fairly international group. And afterwards they were like, oh, you do your beans like this. Because when, you know, back in my country, sometimes we had coconut milk. So, and, and it was like, oh, this is the same food. And we each have cultural associations with it. It was a great connector. Yeah, that is wonderful. I think, you know, I always say, if people say, well, what do you eat? I'm like, greens, greens, beans are the, mm -hmm. are the three things I start with basically any meal. And then you fill it in with whatever, as you say, whatever's in season, whatever's local, whatever you just delight in, and you can fill that in. But if you have greens, greens, and beans, and those are different depending on your geography, depending on your culture. Um, that a friend of mine uh, I was just talking to said, I don't like beans. And I said, really, no beans? You know? And she goes, oh, I don't like lima beans. I'm like, okay, well, lima beans <laughs> at the far end of, of enjoyable, I would think. <laughs> There's so many beans. So towards the end of your book, you have a, a chapter on, um, or a section on compost, which I think is delightful. Long before I was vegan, um, we were composters. And I, my mother was an old Yankee, um, Rhode Island gal. And, and Compost was just normal, just absolutely normal. And I have learned even now to use more of my things just before they go in the compost as stock to freeze, to add to some, um, uh, you, you, what do you call stone soup? Yes. Basically, right? Tell me about stone soup. Uh, that is a story I grew up with. Uh, and I think maybe that ha has influenced, it certainly has influenced my cooking that we have to use every bit of everything. So, you know, during the week when I'm chopping this and that, um, you know, you'll have the, the skin of an onion, you'll have that, the knob end of a carrot or the, the core of peppers. I put all that stuff in a bag and I put that in the freezer. And then when I'm ready, 
when the bag gets full or when I need some broth or something, I make a pot of boiling water, I add the vegetables, I put a lid on, and then I turn it off. It's, it makes its own broth. And then I strain it, um, keep the broth, put the vegetables in my compost bin, and it makes more great soil. So I can grow good arugula, so I can grow great mustard greens and sorrel and all the things I love. Yeah, the circle of life. It's such a, such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then you, I mean, people, I'm always astonished, my husband does it too, buy cartons of vegetable broth, which I don't understand. <laughs> I just don't understand. It could not be easier to make vegetable broth. It's true. And you've got it anyway. One of the things I love about this is that it is a self-creating thing. You don't have to go out and buy anything. You don't have to buy another carton. You don't have to spend that. You don't need the sodium that's in so much of them. Use what you have. That's one of the things I think we have forgotten. That's one of the things I love to teach people. We have so much. Yeah, and we are, I think sometimes we forget. I wasn't, um, I studied art history as a younger person. And all our cities developed along roots of food uh, materials coming in from the farms, distribution, fixing them, local, local spots where they, bread would be baked. Um, as a community, people didn't have usually their own individual hearths to bake. So there was this community surrounded around food, which is just integral, it's intrinsic to being a human being. And your, your, your book is so much a, a meditation on this, not in terms of the history of it, but just the current connection that we sometimes forget. And I think we forget at our peril. Yeah. Um, you know, I was talking about innovation. Really, we haven't developed anything that beats real food. It brings us together. It it, it's just, I mean, I can get quite woo-woo about this, but it is, I think, profound. We forget that breathing and eating are what we need to do to live. And safe, fresh, affordable, accessible food to me is a basic human right. It's not anything you're gonna find in, there's no advertising for it. <laughs> No big broccoli. <laughs> I know if if I had if if the broccoli contingent were paying me, I would almost be rich. Um, <laughs> it's the most precious thing we've got going. Yeah, yeah, and it is, and it is where we know it. Part of part of our, we know it because when we gather together, we always offer each other food and drink. We always, even if we're eating something extremely chemical laden, we still have that. That, that instinct to share food and drink with each other. Yeah, it, it's profound. I mean, it, it's biblical. It's everything we're inclined to do. When you have someone over, you, you just like, oh, uh, even if it's a cup of tea, that can be a really beautiful thing. You share food. Yeah, it is beautiful. So I wanna make sure that everybody looks for Feeding the Hungry Ghost, Life, Faith, and What to Eat for Dinner. That was written almost 10 years ago, as I said. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about where we can find you now, Ellen. Where are you up to date? 
where am I right now? Uh, I am teaching a lot. So you can probably find me online at soulfulvegan.com. Uh, I have another book in the works with an agent. So we will see where that goes. Uh, everyone, good vibes are welcome. Um, you know, when I... When people find out I'm a food writer at first, it's like, oh, you write reviews. What's your favorite restaurant? You know, can you get me into this place? And do you know Ina Garten? Um, food to me is way more than that. And I invite you to, to be in touch with me so we can explore this together, wherever you are on your food journey. I am so proud of you. That, I know that's that's it. It's a welcoming, a very welcoming community that, that we try to develop here at Veg Your Best. And honestly, when I looked at who gave you the reviews, the blurbs on your book, Jacques Pepin and Mireille Guiliano. How, how do we pronounce Mireille's last name? Giuliano. It is um, Giuliano. Okay. Yes. Uh, that was a knockout to me. Um, I think there are uh, there's a whole generation who doesn't know who Jacques Pepin is, and honey, let me tell you, he is a wonderful French chef. Um, and I had met him briefly years ago. I had interviewed him, and the poor man must have done a bazillion interviews by that point. And he was still so engaged, so fascinated and delighted by food. And I always want to be that, too. He's who I want to be when I grow up. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. That is, that's amazing. So a new book, hopefully, fingers crossed, in the works that we will get to know you a little bit more about soon. And what, now, I, you are in Miami, in case anybody missed that. You're in Miami, and we're doing a little bit of a, um, a series this summer on travel as a vegan, or tra travel when you're plant-based. And um, this is an area that most of my clients it's like their last excuse usually, but it's so hard when I'm traveling for business or for pleasure. And um, do you have a couple of things you would like to say about Miami as a destination for people who don't know Miami or when you travel um, far from Miami, what you do to support yourself? Both actually. First of all, come to Miami. We would love to have you. Uh, and when I started being vegan here, it was I was the lone vegan. We are now a vegan Mecca. I just wrote a piece for Veg News called Miami Veg Escapes, and I had to pick 12 places to go to. And it was hard because we have so many more. Uh, and it's very exciting. We have a very, very supportive vegan community. I have heard there are cities where, you know, there's vegan backstabbing and honey, we don't have time for that kind of energy. We need to work together. So please come here for the, the sun and the soulfulness and stay for the food because it's fantastic. But when you are on the road, I know it can be tricky. One thing I do all the time, whether I'm here or traveling, um, I plan ahead. So I, um, I'll call a restaurant and say, hey, I'm vegan. I want to know what you can do to accommodate me. And they almost always can, especially if you're going to a city. However, if they say, well, I, I don't know, lady, you can say, you know, I would love to give you my business, but you've told me I can't. Um, so, you know, inform them, educate them a little. Vegans eat too. Why not at your establishment? Yeah, good point. You know, this is this is the core of, I think, becoming a, a new vegan is asking for what you want. Because we very often, especially I find 
people socialize as women, we're like, oh, you know what? I'm trying to just be a good guest. I'm trying to be a nice customer. I'm trying to be pleasant. I don't want to, I don't want to be that girl. I don't want to be that person. But it's good for all of us to, to ask politely, kindly, respectfully but for what you want, because you're not asking for anything crazy <laughs> when you're a vegan, right? No, it's true. And I have I have been on this journey. I remember having to cringe asking for soy milk somewhere. I'm thinking sometimes it's good to get a little older and wiser and get over yourself. Also, when you go to someone's house and you're like, oh, they're gonna, you know, is it gonna be weird if I'm vegan? Bring food. It's the best ambassador. So make a big pot of beans, make an enormous salad. And I know if you make it from the heart, it will be delicious and everyone will eat it. For Thanksgiving, everyone ate my salad before I could even get to it. it was, <laughs> and I'm very happy that way. And I want everyone to know how delicious vegan can be. That's such a great, that's such great advice. Ellen, you are obviously the exact kind of uh, expert that Veg Your Best needs to have on every week. Of course, I talk every other week or so I, can't, I, have to, I have to put some spaces between all you experts. Otherwise, I lose, my, uh, I lose my train of thought. But I'm so pleased that you could tell us about your, your book, Feeding the Hungry Ghost. And um, I hope that when you have a date for publication for the next book, that you'll come on and tell us all about it, because we'd love to see what, that, what that's going to look like. I'm very excited. And I have loved being here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. So... What did you think of Ellen? At Veg Your Best, you know, I'm here. You've heard it. I'm here every week to encourage you to eat more plants and take on an impossible goal. And creating this space, this pod, and my coaching practice to share all these ideas and tools, it's been part of an impossible goal for me. And one of the things that has been particularly rewarding as we've built the listeners and the reach is having some guests on the pod who've come to a vegan life and practice in different ways, with different specialties. There really is no one kind of vegan. There's no one way to move towards veganism. There's no one profession for vegans. So it's really, for me, such an honor having people like Ellen Canner on the pod to share her commitment and her experience with me and with you, my listeners. And I hope, I hope that you will look for her book, Feeding the Hungry Ghost, Life, Faith, and What to Eat for Dinner. And please check out her website, thesoulfulvegan.com. And share this interview with someone who would really resonate with Ellen. Okay, I'll be back with a solo episode next week. I mean, unless things change wildly while I'm stomping around in England with my husband. And if you're following Veg Your Best on Instagram, well, you are, aren't you? So I could just, I could just say when you're on Instagram, you'll be seeing lots of the trip. Because I think travel's back. I think. Fingers crossed. And we'll be talking vegan travel a lot this summer. Send me your vegan travel tips, your questions and conundrums. Is it conundra or conundrums? Send me the answer to that. <laughs> Send it to me and I will give you a shout out and share all your ideas with our community. You know, I want to know what you guys think. My Veg Your Bestie. Veg Your Best podcast production, music, and editing by Charlie Weinshank. 
Thanks, Charlie. Before you go, it would mean so much to me and the Veg Your Best team if you would hit subscribe, leave us a five-star review, or share with someone you think might be interested. Something about algorithms, it helps bump us up a little in the rankings, and that's the best way to help others find the podcast and for us to find our audience. So until next week, make it easy and veg your best.